Recently, two Federal Reserve researchers wrote a paper in which they concluded that quantitative easing was making the economic financial monetary system more fragile by pulling collateral out of the system, U.S. Treasuries. Well, two other Federal Reserve researchers have come to another surprising conclusion, and I'm going to talk to Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners, about this new, very interesting conclusion that was brought to our attention by a reader, a watcher, a listener. So thank you very much. Jeff, we're going to start out by discussing the interest rate fallacy before we get to the punchline. Can you tell us what the interest rate fallacy is? Well, I think the interest rate fallacy kind of connects everything together. Not only does it tell you what's happening, it tells you why things are happening. And very simply, as Milton Friedman put it in 1967, and I think you even, Emil, even you, you had uncovered a, an earlier quote from, was it 1964, where he referenced the interest rate fallacy. But, you know, basically what he was said, what he was saying is that we have interest rates all backwards. And by we, we mean the financial community and academic economists, central bankers, all those kinds of people. What we're taught to believe is that low rates equal stimulus, that, that monetary policy is being accommodative and loose and all of these things. And, it's, and it sounds very intuitive that that would be the case, right? Because low interest rates means it's cheaper for borrowers to borrow. Therefore, they'd be lining up at the local bank to, to, to borrow money, which would you know, create a positive economic impacts and all those you know, inflationary stuff and all that kind of stuff, all that kind of thing. So... You know, low rates are stimulus and consequently on the other side, high rates are restrictions. That's slowing the economy down, making borrowing more expensive so that less borrowing takes place. That's what we're taught. I mean, first day you sit down in Economics 101, that's what they're going to tell you. The Federal Reserve controls interest rates, number one. And number two, the way it controls interest rates or the reason it controls interest rates is Low rates are stimulus, high rates are a break on economic growth, especially inflationary economic growth. What Friedman says is now, historical experience has shown conclusively that that's exactly backwards. When we see low interest rates, money must have been tight, like the 1930s, the Great Depressions, as we've talked about many times before. If you go back to the 1930s, which no one in their, their right mind would ever equate to a period of loose monetary uh, policy or conditions in the banking system, interest rates were low. And as you know, after he made the interest rate fallacy speech in 1967, we then were moving into the great inflation where money was so loose, it created enormous global problems. And what were interest rates doing in the 1970s? They weren't low, they were high. So Milton Friedman was absolutely correct in pointing out that we have interest rates backwards. And by we, I mean, again, the financial community and especially central bankers. For anyone in our audience who would like to read Milton Friedman verbatim, referencing what we just discussed, you can do so at the end of Jeff's essay, which was posted at Real Clear Markets, and it's titled, Slight But Only Slight Movement in the Understanding of Rates. And that was posted on April 9th. And seeing as it's April 9th and me being in a British overseas territory in the Cayman Islands, I have to, of course, acknowledge the passing of Prince Philip and, and condolences to our UK audience and everyone in the overseas Commonwealth family. So a sad day, but 
Jeff, let me move on back to the article with respect to an event on, in February of 2005, Greenspan made a speech to Congress. And then a month later, Ben Bernanke in March, he made his own speech. And in that speech, well, I guess I don't even want to go too far. Tell us first, what did Greenspan bring to our attention? And then what did Bernanke try to explain a month later? Well, remember, in the textbook conception, there's two parts of this 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 uh, this supposed setup, this, this monetary policy regime. The first part is the Fed controls interest rates. The second part is that low interest rates are stimulus and high rates are constriction. So there's again, there's two parts here. And Greenspan in February of 2005 was talking about the first part. What he was saying was that, look, the Federal Reserve starting in June 2004 began raising interest rates. And what he expected and what pretty much everyone expected, Bill Groves, all the bond kings, everybody had talked about at that time was, gee, you know, long-term treasury yields aren't rising. And what he said to before Congress was, look, we look when we think about treasury yields, we think about the bond market, we look at interest rates as a series of one-year forwards. In other words, you stack them one on top of another. Therefore, if the Fed controls the first in that series, the rest of the series should just fall in line. So if the Fed is raising rates at the short end, you would expect that the long end would rise by the almost equivalent amount based on, you know, a, a, considering a couple other factors. But by and large, the Fed raises rates five, six, whatever times up until that point, um, they would expect the equivalent of those the, that short end uh, increase in interest rates to be traded in the long end of the market. In fact, that never happened. And so in, in February of 2005, Greenspan's before Congress saying this is a conundrum. We control interest rates. We tell everybody we control interest rates. It's a series of one year forwards. Yet here we are in this rate hike regime and the long-term treasury yields haven't even moved. And I think by that point, they were actually a little bit lower. So the bond market was saying, you think you control interest rates, but you really don't. So that was the first, that's the first part of it. That's, that's an important part. The, the Fed believes in theory, even to this day, that interest rates do not, do not act independently. And so that was really his conundrum was the long end of the yield curve is acting independently. That's, that's not something we believe. Let me, let's tease that out very quickly. What do you mean by do, they do not act independently? They believe literally that they control both the short and the back end of the curve. Is that right? They are yeah. dependent on the central bank with some accounting for perhaps time differences and, and things like that. But it's a, yeah, yeah. With, a right? series of one year forwards proposes that the Fed, in, the, if you don't want to say control, and they probably wouldn't, but they would say heavily influences interest rates so that monetary policy conducted at the short end would immediately transfer to the long end with some leeway and margin for error and things like that. And it's the same same fallacy that the Federal Reserve also uh, assumed between by controlling only the federal funds rate and then assuming that 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 any rate hikes or any transmission would immediately go into LIBOR and euro dollar rates too, right? Because LIBOR previous to 2007 had, had um, traded almost exactly like federal funds had up until that point. So there's this whole assumption that seemed to be backed by some experience that said interest rates all over the place 
don't are do not act independently of monetary policy. And so if you're a central banker, you're thinking, I only need to control one little tiny sliver of the marketplace. And that gets and then I influence everything else in exactly the textbook fashion. That's the the hubris, the the uh, you know, the arrogance that I don't even need to I don't even need to understand how the marketplace works. I just move the federal funds rate around and everything else in the economy falls in line. That's what he means when he says rates are not independent. And this is something that he talked about earlier in June of 2003 during an FOMC meeting when they talked about why Japan was failing at QE. They were starting to wonder, are our rates maybe independent? And Greenspan said, no, 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 we can't, we can't even go down that road because it kind of just, it just it, it destroys pretty much everything we believe. So when he, you know, 2005, he's in front of Congress. Yeah, we're raising rates, but the long end of the yield curve is seemingly acting independent. That was a watershed for all the wrong reasons because it showed maybe the Fed doesn't operate the way we all think it does. And then you start thinking, well, why isn't the Fed the center of the universe as it proposes? And that's where we get into Bernanke's speech in the Global Savings Clause. It's a stunning geocentric view of the monetary order. Amazing. They really believe they are in charge in the, at the center of it. It's, it's incredible. Chutzpah uh, and, as you said, arrogance. So, a month later, Ben Bernanke heads to Virginia, to Richmond, to an economic conference, an association of economists, uh, the Virginia Association of Economists, and he explains the conundrum somewhat and he he identifies why risk-free rates are acting consistently and there's a housing bubble as well maybe and he points to foreigners right we have to have a reason why it, the long-term bond yields are are acting independently or seemingly so because a couple of things that we noticed in the middle of 2000s apart from that whole housing thing which remember bernanke said that ah, that's no big deal remember uh if you recall and even today, the Federal Reserve's position on asset bubbles is that we don't know an asset bubble is an asset bubble until after it happens and markets can get frothy. And so we don't really pay attention to we don't really pay attention to what are obvious asset bubbles. However, that's just the Fed's view, right? That's but, the Fed's view. Because the Bank for International Settlements. Well, what do you think of the Bank for International Settlements? They've come up with, I don't know, half a dozen, five or so of uh, early warning indicators based on various financial measures, including property prices that say when these things go uh, well above normal to the national trend, that's an early warning indicator, about a 50% chance of a financial crisis in the next three years. That sounds like they're saying, hey, we can identify asset bubbles ahead of time. Is the well, Fed what, just... Not that I'm arguing Bernanke's position. I don't believe it. But what he would say is that yes, that's possibly true. And by the way, the Fed also, uh, they talk about during those, during those years too, about how housing factors, whatever prices, activities, building, all this, all the stuff that goes into the housing market, they knew it was above normal. It's not that they didn't know that it was outside of historical, historical experience, they knew it was. But what their position is, again, this is not my position, but this is what Bernanke would tell you, is that there was probably we have to understand that there might be reasons why that is the case. The fact that it is it's, that it's outside of historical experience doesn't necessarily mean it's a bubble or it's harmful or something. There might be some reason for it, and that's again one of the motivations for why he came up with the Global Savings Club, because in his view, 
that was all part of the problem. From what the Federal Reserve was, was, was observing, not just in the housing market, but more importantly in global trade in the current account, the US dollars exchange value falling, what it looked like from, and, and of course, foreigners buying US treasuries, what it looked like from Ben, for ben Bernanke and Alan Greenspan's perspective was that there was this all this flood of money coming onshore into the United States. And of course, the Federal Reserve long ago saying the euro dollar system is nothing more than a weird little investment scheme of the banks. It's not really a monetary system. If you see a flood of US dollars coming into the United States and you don't believe there's a dollar system outside creating them, what is your answer to that? And what Bernanke came up with is, well, it must be foreign savers. Foreign savers are converting into dollars and buying US dollar assets because baby boomers are getting ready for their, their retirement and they prefer US dollar assets for some reasons that he really never really explained. But you know, the point is, he's trying to connect all of these dots, including as you just mentioned, Emil, about, hey, housing is outside of his historical norms. How can we account for that? US Treasury yields are not obeying their series of one year forwards. How can we account for that? The US current account is deteriorating way outside of its historical norm. The US dollar is falling. How can we account for all these things? And what he said was, it sure looks like a global savings glut because there's all this, it looks like a flood, but it can't be money, it can't be dollars. Otherwise people might blame us. So it's gotta be foreign savers. And you point out here then, well, perhaps there is a contradiction with the, the assumed notion that the central bank is at the center of the monetary system and that they control the rates. And then this, there's this foreign outside savings glut force that's influencing rates and the dollar and the current account. So that, that was unsettling, you said here. I'll read it out. If foreign savers could achieve such an unshakable grip over the very basics of risk-free rates outside the very short run, then surely the allegedly omnipresent central bank could not have been living up to its own lore. Hmm. If you, yeah, if you accepted Bernanke's premise that foreign savers were so heavily influencing risk-free treasury rates at the long end, you also had to give up on Alan Greenspan's series of one-year fours. Those two things were mutually exclusive. And so as Bernanke tried to account for what was going on in the middle 2000s, he definitely realized, I gotta at least admit one part of our myth is broken here, that rates are acting independently. I'm gonna blame foreign savers for that, but either way, you can't have both. You can't have the Fed control over interest rates and um, keep the the keep the whole thing going. Of course, it, all he was really doing was trying to reconcile his word worldview to what was really going on, because what was really going on violated his worldview in, in any number of ways. Well, recently, the there are two researchers out of the Chicago Fed decided to take on this global savings glut thesis. Now that a I don't know, 15 years or so has passed. Here, let me read what the, uh, where people can find it. Again, Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, and the title is The Global Saving Glut and the Fall in U.S. Real Interest Rates, a 15-Year Retrospective. It's by Robert Barsky and Matthew Eason. Let me read a quote that you brought out here in your article. Quote, first, falling long-term real interest rates were considered a major source of the housing boom 
that eventually gave way to the global financial crisis of 2007-08. Second, long-term rates stubbornly continued to fall during the expansion following the 2001 recession, despite a sequence of increases in the federal funds rate and associated short-term market rates, a phenomenon that became known as the Greenspan conundrum. You know, the part that I circled here that kind of stood out as kind of awkward is that uh, falling long-term real rates were considered a major source of the housing boom. I, for, you know, the way I always thought of it was that there's just a lot of money everywhere. The Euro dollar system was throwing off money and therefore that's what led to the housing boom and asset bubble with money everywhere. Uh, not so much that interest rates led the way. Yeah, but that's, you know, again, Bernanke's position, the, the traditional mainstream economic position is that interest rates are that powerful. Um, and it goes back to, you know, the, the monetary evolution, even the early euro dollar system, where um, much of what economics thinks about in terms of how things work, they think about everything in terms of interest rates nowadays, rather than quantity of money, because they don't know the quantity of money, they certainly can't define it, and they can't measure it. So they have to reduce their conception of how things work into something. And since the really since the 70s, that's been interest rates, interest rates go up, they think backwards, that's 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 a bad sign, that's constriction, interest rates go down, that must mean it's cheaper for borrowers, therefore there's your bubble. Interest rates are too low and that's where the bubble came from. Let me read another quote from them. And dear audience, hold on, okay? After I read this quote, Jeff will explain it to us, okay? But let me read it anyhow. We observed that the decline in the absolute value of current accounts paralleled the reduction in gross trade flows occasioned by the Great Recession. Consequently, we concluded that the ability of the global savings glut hypothesis to explain the fall in long-term real rates between 2002 and 2006 is probably significantly greater than its ability to account for the further fall in rates from the Great Recession onward. What, is, what does that mean, Jeff? What they're saying is that it looked like the global savings cloud hypothesis was somewhat probable before 2007. And the reason was because the things that Bernanke was talking about, writing about this flood of money onto the United States shores, all that was evident in the data. And that's, again, that, that's the reason he came up with the global savings cloud hypothesis to begin with, was because it looked like all this money was coming into the U.S. The U.S. was borrowing money from outside the U.S. The U.S. was borrowing savings, in his view, from outside the United States. And what they say is that, well, once the Great Recession hit, all of a sudden the U.S. current account and the offsetting current account surpluses for much of the rest of the world disappeared. So there was no more money coming back and in, coming into the United States. So if, if Bernanke was right that foreign money coming into the U.S. buying treasury was, was the reason that treasury yields fell more than they should have or were lower than they should have been in the pre-crisis era, there's no way to account for it after the Great Recession because there is no global savings glut anymore. That's, think, really what the, that's really what the conclusion is. Well, the Council on Foreign Relations just, or at least it just came to my attention, they put out this global imbalances index that I've pulled up. And I think we can see what we're talking about here. On top is the current account surplus for all the different countries. And they break it down by China, East Asia, Eurozone, other Europe, 
and then other regions, as well as Anglophone countries. And then below the zero line are all the deficits. And you'll notice that the biggest chunk on the deficit is the Anglophone countries. And of course, that's referring to Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, and the United States. And we can see how that's expanding. It's expanding as we head towards 2008. Uh, let's see, from 1998 to 2001, it really surged, right? There was a, it was seemingly somewhat stable for the Anglophone countries. And then it surged and it took a little break. And then from 2002 to 2006, again, a huge surge. And it seemed like East Asia was leading the way in that particular era before the financial crisis when it comes to, I don't know, what would you say, the surplus countries from 2002. Yeah, and that, to the, the uh, paper that we're referencing, the Chicago Fed study, they also make the same observation, which is that the, the surplus was mostly in Asia. So they, when, they, when they statistically decided to test the global savings cloud hypothesis, they, they broke up the world in basically two categories. There was Asia and then there's everybody else. Asia was the savers. And, when, and they include in, in Asia also those in the Middle East and sort of, I think, some North African countries, some of the oil producing countries too. Yeah. So the idea was that in the global savings cloud hypothesis as it went through certain iterations was that the savers were in Asia and they were investing their savings in U.S. treasuries primarily, but not just U.S. treasuries, but other U.S. assets, which, you know, we've talked about before using tick data, for example, you can see the same exact thing. This is something that is observable across many different data series. So it's it's one of those things that you have to account for in some way. But does the global savings hypothesis stand up beyond 2006 or 2007? As you're showing here, it can't. Because even the, in this yeah. data or the tick data or any number of other data series, what you see is that there is no global savings cloud, which, I mean, in our view, there was never a global savings cloud that was wrong to begin with. But as far as explaining lower treasury yields from a flood of savings coming into the United States, it was somewhat plausible 2004, 2005, 2006. But then you get into the post, you know, 2007, 2008 and beyond, it's not at all possible. And by the way, during the, that, that period, obviously, since 2008 forward, U.S. Treasury yields have fallen even further. And that's really what they're saying here is that, look, we can't account for this secondary, this second, uh, this post-crisis decline in yields, according to the global savings glut, because there was no global savings glut at that time. What about this quote here? They say the role of weak investment worldwide, worldwide appears to tie in well with the secular stagnation hypothesis a close but brasher cousin of the GSG hypothesis. Now we're getting closer to the interest rate fallacy being recognized in the official literature, which is that low interest rates, apart since we can't look at the global savings flood as causing low interest rates, we have to recognize that they do correlate with other outcomes, including weak investment, as Larry Summers has proposed in the secular stagnation hypothesis, which is finally getting interest rates into the correct context, which is that low interest rates seem to correspond and correlate with bad and undesirable outcomes. And we can't explain it this time with a global savings cloud. So it's more of, okay, it wasn't really the global savings cloud. It probably wasn't before the crisis. How can we account for it? All we know is that lower interest rates, weaker investment, secular stagnation, these things seem to go together. But 
when we wrap all these things up in the, the actual data, the current account, what's going on with these monetary flows inside and outside the United States, that's where you depart from the global savings cloud and get into global US dollar, Euro dollars, that kind of thing. You say it had never been savings. These weren't Middle Eastern or Chinese baby boomers getting ahead of their old age needs. It had been just the domestic spillover from the vast external banking architecture going nuclear from the mid 90s to the mid 2000s. So you're saying the euro dollar system was creating this surplus, sure fit of money. It couldn't satisfy, it satisfied all the internal advanced economy money center investment needs. It flew out to the emerging markets, saturated them. They then sent it back to the advanced economy money centers. Yeah, some of it and was redirected. I mean, look, a lot of it was redirected in foreign official accounts, right? Because China, perfect example. Euro dollars throwing dollars into China, mm -hmm. massive quantities of dollars, which the PBOC to try to manage their currency regime picks up and uh, vacuums up a lot of those dollars and buys U.S. treasuries with it. So as all those dollars are moving into emerging markets in Asia, some of them are being reflected back inside the United States. That is what Bernanke saw as a global savings club. He saw the euro dollars expansion being boomeranging or reflecting back into the U.S. And well, I don't believe in a euro dollar. I'm not allowed to. So it must be global savings. It must be the Chinese are saving when in fact it was nothing more than the spillover of monetary expansion offshore. He and that's why that's how we can account for the difference. What looked like a global savings cut was a massive spillover before the 2008 crisis. The global savings cut didn't disappear because it didn't exist. It was that there was no longer this flood of dollars worldwide. And so without the flood of dollars, there was less dollars being redirected back into the United States. The current accounts all adjusted to that fact. And that's why interest rates kept going lower, because now we moved into a monetary shortage situation. And see, but you say that also explains Greenspan's conundrum. So yeah. after that's, 2008. That's a I think that's probably one of the more confusing aspects of this, because we're saying lower interest rates mean tight money. But during Greenspan's conundrum, that could not have been the case, right? Whether you believe in global savings cloud or believe in the euro dollar, middle 2000s was when, as I said before, that's when the euro dollar system was going nuclear. That's when money was available everywhere around the world. So how can we say lower interest rates and tight money? When the answer is that risk, perception of risk, reality of risk, it wasn't tight money at that time. The market was preparing for tight money in the future. In fact, in the near future. And so the banking system in particular, not just foreign central banks, but also global banks were buying US treasuries, stockpiling safe assets, anticipating, first of all, for collateral reasons, but also anticipating that we think there's a housing problem here and not just a housing problem, but there was a corporate debt bubble across the rest of the world. If this starts to go wrong, it could get really bad. And so interest rates were falling in the middle, the bond safety yields were falling in the middle 2000s as things were going manic and excessive, anticipating what actually happened. The tight money that did show up in starting in, I would argue, 2006. So yeah. it wasn't really that far off. And it was the system adjusting, despite Alan Greenspan raising the short-term rate saying everything's fine, longer-term rates, this flood of money was saying, 
this shit could all hit the fan really quickly here. Part of my language, this could go really bad, really fast. And that's exactly what happened. So the low interest rates in the middle 2000s were reflecting the, the likelihood probability of tight money in the future, which is of course, exactly how it worked out. And, and again, it's safe liquid assets, safe liquid assets, safe liquid assets are in demand when you think liquidity is going to be a problem. That all makes sense to me, but it violates a couple of key assumptions of the geocentric view of the monetary order that the central bank has. But I guess the bigger picture, when we look back to the show we did two weeks ago about QE and how researchers said, you know, it's only contributing a little bit to a reduction of interest rates. And then last week, our whole discussion about collateral and how two researchers from the Fed were saying, mm, maybe this is making the system more fragile as we're pulling out collateral. That, forcing banks to have to reuse, rehypothecate, repledge many more times. And now another paper. So it's, what, what do you think, Jeff? It's a uh, positive. These Small little bits. progress, right? It's, and again, it's, you know, it's being hit over the head by 15 years of evidence that runs contrary to mainstream orthodox theory. And after enough time, at least a few people are starting to say, maybe we've got this all wrong. It's starting to, you know, we're looking at the world and we're not seeing the things that we're supposed to be seeing. We're not seeing how low rates are corresponding with positive outcome. We're not seeing how the Federal Reserve controls everything. Forget, you know, long term. What about even LIBOR and all these other things? I mean, it's, it's starting to reconcile the way the world actually has behaved over the last couple of decades with how the textbook must be wrong about some of these most basic assumptions. Again, we started with two of them. The two of them were the Federal Reserve controls interest rates and that it does so because low rates are stimulus and high rates are the opposite of stimulus. And those two things in particular, evidence has shown conclusively that there's really no other way to explain them that keeps the, the mainstream model afloat. Well, in part two of our discussion, we're going to take a look at some interest rates, the U.S. Treasury rates, and see what they're up to, both the short end, the near term, and the long end because they've diverged some. So we're going to check in on that market, very important market, and see what the market is telling us about the state of the economy and the future ahead. U.S. Treasury bills, what are they doing lately? Let's check in on them. We're going to do so with Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, we're going to be discussing a blog post of yours that you posted on the 8th of April, and it was called Rechecking on Bill and his newfound followers. That's at Alhambra Investments. And you asked two questions. They're not quite easy to understand, but before we even answer them, we're going to set the scene. But let me ask them anyhow, just to grab the audience. So here, here's question number one. It's fair to ask which end is actually leading. And two, more importantly, if it's the wrong end, why should that end be leading? And we're, of course, referring to the U.S. Treasury curve, the short and the long end. But before we start addressing that question, Jeff, the context that the U.S. Treasury yields and bonds that they find themselves in is a good one, maybe even very, very positive looking. Everything, right? I mean, it's, there's nothing that's going wrong right now. It, it's, it seems like if, if there's something that, that we've been concerned about or should be concerned about, that's been answered and papered over and there's flood of cash and flood. I mean, 
We got vaccines going on that's that's in this country, at least, is going on pretty well. There's some hiccups in other places around the world, but at least there's a vaccine and it's it's being it's being handled. That's that's there's a there's an end of the, the a light at the end of the tunnel as far as the pandemic goes. That's one thing. Then you've got governments around the world, particularly the United States, throwing around cash like they have money trees in the backyard, <laughs> trillions upon trillions. I mean, We've got a two trillion dollar stimulus, quote unquote stimulus, that was done last month. We've got a two point two trillion dollar infrastructure stimulus that's uh, that's being offered. That was on top of the one trillion or nearly one trillion at the end of last year. The two point two trillion CARES Act. I mean, multiple trillions in, in fiscal stimulus. And then you've got, of course, the Federal Reserve, which is quantitative easing. Bank reserves are almost four trillion, by far the most on record. I mean flood of cash flood of money reflation pandemic over covid cases dropping i mean everything is going that could go right is going right what about the treasury general account that's another thing that should be positive right the the yes. us treasury is sending money back get this money out of here send it back into the economy Yes, the Treasury had built up this cash balance in the TGA, which is an account it holds with the Federal Reserve, which excludes it outside of the banking system. And as this latest round of stimulus goes on, uh, these these checks go out to Americans and they they, they get spent, and all the other aspects of the the uh, bill, the the fiscal bill, get acted upon. The Treasury Department is now using that TGA to send that money into the real economy, and it's being drawn down by a, a really significant degree. I think it's more than 750 billion, three quarters of a trillion in just nine weeks. So there's a flood of money from the from the TGA going into the real economy. So you add all of these things together, and it seems like you know, reflation should be doing really, really well here. Jeff, so the question is we should be seeing inflationary activity, inflationary takeoff, or the bond market, the US Treasury bond market should be showing signs of a route or uh, looking forward to a better future, which means yields would be rising. And I suppose some of the yields are rising, but not the short-term ones, and that's where we're gonna turn to. Yeah, we, we sh I mean, if everything really is going well and it's supposed to continue into the longer run, we would really expect to see at the longer end of the yield curve, not just yields rising as they have, but yields really exploding. And we're talking about trillions upon trillions of supposedly really good stimulus, really inflationary stimulus. If it really was inflationary stimulus, and this is something we haven't seen in the United States since World War II, this level of government intervention. And then on top of it, you know, quantitative easing, you know, even if that's not money printing and bank reserves, there's got to be some positive fundamental or positive sentimental impacts to that too. You combine all of these things together, an end to the pandemic, you know, a possible end to the pandemic, getting back to normal, trillions upon trillions being flooded all over the place. And you really have to wonder why isn't the long end selling off much more than it has? As we've seen, as we've shown before, as we talked about before, when you put the current sell-off in the bond market in context of previous reflationary periods, it's actually underwhelming. It's mm -hmm. actually kind of you, you look at it and you think that's it. That's all we got. We didn't even we didn't even rise as much in yields as we did in 2018 with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which wasn't really that big of a difference. I mean, compared to the, the amount of government deficit borrowing and stimulus and that's going on today, it's it's a drop in the bucket. 
So why isn't the long end selling off more than it has? And then when we break apart the long end of the bond market, we start to see, well, not we look at inflation break-evens. Some of the break-evens have broken down. The long, the tips curve is inverted, which means longer-term inflation expectations are much lower than the short run, which already the market's saying, well, maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't inflationary longer term. And then you've got the short end of the yield curve, the bills, which have been heavily bid, as you, know, you were just showing there, Emil, the short end, which is, which is the bills. And uh, you know, even all the bills now are being bid, bid up, the yields falling, including all the way out to the 12 month. And I think the 12 month bill yield is down to five basis points, which is completely diverging from where the notes are. The two year treasury note is, start, is still rising somewhat in yield whereas the bills are all shrinking. And it's fair to add, okay, what's going, which end of the curve is really influencing the rest of the, the, the entire, you know, the entire reflationary trend. And up until recently, you would say, well, the bill, the bill part of it kind of got some mainstream notice a couple months ago, but then it all just kind of, it kind of went away in the flood of reflationary euphoria over the fact that the bond market actually was selling off at the long end even though it really didn't sell off all that much, it was made out to be this historic, massive thing. I mean, the headlines at the end of, at the end of March were talking about how this is the worst quarter for the, the, the treasury market since 1980, when in fact, well, yeah, maybe it was the worst calendar quarter, but who thinks of things in regular calendar quarter intervals? In fact, as we said before, the bond market sell-off, despite all of these things going right, is truly underwhelming. And that just draws our attention back to the short end. <laughs> so for those of you who are listening, <laughs> I have been uh, pulling the, uh, the graph on and off as I, I'm trying to time whether or not Jeff is going to talk about the short end or not. Great, Jeff. So you told us a lot there. And what I'm, okay, so I wanted to pull up the, this graph because there's a few things happening on this chart. There's uh, three market rates, U.S. Treasury rates. And then there's two that I like to think of as more like, you know, Fed-determined rates. And the first one is the interest on excess reserves. And that's the big, thick red line cutting across the middle at 10 basis points. And then we have the effective federal funds rate. And that one reached up to the interest on excess reserves. Now, quick question. Is that interest on excess reserves line supposed to serve as a ceiling? for the effective federal funds rate. Here we go again with the ceiling versus well, floor. No, because this it's, is it. it's important. Like the we're looking at a, a few rates here, and some of them are Fed determined, and therefore the market should behave like so. So I just want to draw that out as we look at that. Is that is the market behaving as the Fed hopes it should? Well, the Fed looks at IOER as a double floor, which is kind of confusing because the effective federal funds rate is obviously below the one floor. And so mm -hmm. the double floor is IOER is the depository floor, which applies to depository institutions who are eligible to receive IOER. And the RRP, which is not pictured here, but is set at zero, that is the wholesale floor. So that's how they look at the depository, the, 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 um, the dual, the two tools they use to influence interest rates. And the relationship between effective federal funds and IOER is something we talked about a lot during 2019 when the effective federal funds went above IOER, which should have been a point at which depositories said, look, I don't need IOER. Federal funds is above that. Why don't I blend into federal funds and bring that market rate back down? And the fact that it never did 
and it really is it's not necessarily ceiling it's a trigger point that's supposed to that's supposed to um get banks thinking about whether or not they want to lend in, in federal funds because it's at a rate that's better than than um better than they're getting at ioer therefore it's not necessarily a signal it's not a ceiling but it's it's one of the things that should influence where federal funds can go it really shouldn't be able to go too much higher than ioer got it and right now federal funds hasn't changed too much but it has come down a little bit do you find that concerning that it's dropped a few basis points i think what's it at right now seven yeah it's been flat at seven except for the end quarter and going back to the middle of february ironically around the 25th <laughs> but anyway i find it what i find curious about federal funds is as this flood of tga money gets converted into bank reserves it's supposed to depress all sorts of money market rates yet here we see federal funds which is a really a really rinky dink market nowadays why isn't the flood of money if it's a flood of money influencing the federal funds rate more than a couple basis points from where it was in january the fact that it's at seven basis points where bill yields even the 12-month bill yield is now down to five basis points what we're seeing is then the market is saying something else besides this supposed alleged tga flood must be influencing only the treasury bills now some people would say well that's money market funds because money market funds are required to, to uh, invest in only 12 months or one year and less securities. But to me, it's an interesting, in the collateral context, the timing and all of this other thing, um, especially related to federal funds where we don't see anything except for bill yields. Now we've moved down uh, the page and what we see now are bill yields and the longer term, the three years, the seven years, the two years, the five year, and we see a divergence there, but I guess we've already talked about this. The idea is, yeah, they're diverging and they're reflating as they should be, but they're not reflating as much as we have seen in previous reflationary episodes since 2008, let alone a normal economic environment like the 90s or I wouldn't say normal, but employed or people were employed during the 2000s. So. Yeah, and we talked about this taken. before. I mean, remember, this is 2013. This is very reminiscent of 2013, especially May, June, July, August, the summer of 2013, when you saw bill yields drop in reflation in the long end. It was almost exactly the same setup. And then, we, of course, we had all those problems with repo, you know, special rates and things like that, collateral shortages that were indicated there. And it was, you know, going into 2014 when it was supposed to be everything going positive instead we started to see reflation trades fall off you know the us dollar started to rise particularly against the chinese currency and then of course uh long-term treasury yields began to fall as well so it's interesting that we see the divergence we got reflation in the notes and bonds but something else in the bills and now it's the question that i asked at the beginning was which end is really the one that's influencing behavior well, are you, can you answer that for us as we summarize this article? Well, it's, you know, all of this stuff is short run, so it's not, there's no definitive answer here, but it's interesting as we talked about also February 25th and after that a lot of, a lot of the global marketplace, including tips in U.S. Treasuries, since February 25th, reflation has almost, has almost disappeared. 
It's, you know, most rates, they aren't, they aren't, they aren't uh, falling again, but they're at least moving sideways. They're not rising like they would, given how you would expect the market to behave with so much stimulus, this flood of cash, this inflation that everybody says is coming. Oh, PPI rates that are through the roof, right? All of these things that are enormously positive, yet the, the global bond market is saying, first of all, it's not that impressive. And second of all, we're not sure something isn't going wrong since February 25th. And that's really the story at the front end of the bills. And I think what's going on since February 25th is a reminder that this is a fragile system and it doesn't matter how many trillions the Federal Reserve comes up with bank reserves, those don't really matter. What really does matter is everything else. And then we look at, you know, why do we care about the Fedwire on February 24th? What really happened on that day wasn't really a big deal. It was, a, it was a three or four hour shutdown, maybe not a three hour shutdown in Fedwire, which caused a little bit of a headache, but it was the response to it, which was the enormous treasury sell off the day after, especially the, 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 the uh, seven year auction, it didn't go all that well. That was dealers again, stepping back. And it was very reminiscent of September, 2019. What we learned about from another event that shouldn't have been a big deal. It was a reminder that if the smallest little thing starts to go wrong, it has an enormous impact. And that kind of asymmetry is, is essentially, it's a risk. It's something that you have to look at and say, this is a fragile system. And that's and what I think is, that's what the bill yields are saying. And I think that's why inflation has been so underwhelming and has in many parts of the system uh, for the last month and a half now sort of almost disappeared. And not just the American system, we've been, Right. talking about American yields, but we have seen the February 24th, 5th, 6th reverberate. Where have we seen it? We've seen it in short-term German sovereign um, bonds, uh, notes, I mean, uh, the New Zealand currency, the Chinese currency, copper, oil. Yeah, commodities too. It's, it's, it's pretty universal how it shows up. And it's just, it's one of those things. Everything is going right. Trillions, trillions, trillions. We've never seen this much. Why isn't the market behaving differently? Why is the market stepping back and saying, we're not too sure about what's going on here when everything supposedly is going right? Do you, but you don't actually ever answer that in your articles. Why? Other than just the system is fragile and we haven't seen something that will really change and pull us out of the ditch that we've been in for 15, 20 years, which, you know, just a little bit of an occasional outburst of stimulus, uh, the perpetual monetary policies, that's not going to get us out, right? That's the problem. That's what hasn't changed. Yeah. And I think more recently, what's changed is people are starting to evaluate or the markets are starting to reevaluate, not just stimulus, whether it actually is effective, but really, are we really recovering at a rate we need to be recovering? If we're not, and I'm particularly thinking about China, if we're not recovering at the rate we need to, we're not going to get as far and as fast as, we, as the global economy really needs to reduce the risks in the financial system. And that makes beyond the short run much, murky, much more murky, which is itself a risk. And that's something you have to account for in terms of you know, setting you know, how many treasuries you want to buy and hold and things like that. Dealer activities, balance sheet capacities, they're all governed by risk perception. And so if you think that Stimulus isn't necessarily helpful, and even if it is helpful, it may not be helpful beyond the long, beyond the short run. Again, thinking about the inverted tips curve, long, what what happens after all of that? What happens next? What happens later this year? 
And if later this year isn't as good as people seem to be thinking right now, or at least the mainstream media seems to be writing up this inflationary fire that's coming down the road, what if that's not the case? That's when you start, you don't, you don't reevaluate then when it happens, you start anticipating all of these things before it. And if the bond market is saying, we're not really sure what comes next. We, we were happy that you know, all of this, this government action was gonna happen. Now that it's happened, it's now, now what? What's, what's really, what, what really is gonna follow uh, the short run? A good example of that, where we have this great headline, but then underneath in the details, there's uncertainty, could be the March payroll report in the United States. Great, but underneath, some unsettling observations. And that's what we're going to talk about in part three. On April 2nd, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released the March payroll report, which was fantastic. At least that's what the headline said. What about the details of the report? Was it all fantastic? We're going to ask Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. Jeff, we're going to talk about an article that you posted at the blog on the 5th of April, and it was called Reopening 2. Here's how you start out. Last Friday's March 2021 payroll exceeded expectations in nearly every category. That's good news. What are some of the expectations? What did people expect to see? Well, you go back to December. Remember that, you know, the payroll report was negative and it's since been revised to, you know, a couple hundred thousand negative. So it was, mm. we ended last year the wrong way. And that, that, that was for several reasons, you know, reimposed lockdown, re, re, uh, um, more restrictive activities, not just in the U.S., but also also around the world. And then you just had the last half of the last quarter of, of last year was not moving in the right direction to begin with. So it seemed to say we ended 2020 in exact wrong way we wanted to going in, in payroll report in terms of the payroll report, we had the labor market actually shrinking again, which, you know, since we're already 10 million short from where we started from, that was a really, really bad sign. Then we had, of course, the, the, the Trump helicopter and then the Biden helicopter. And we have all of these other government stimulus uh, uh, interventions in between. And the BLS comes out with the March payroll report. And it's been, it, it had been slowly accelerating since December. And then in March, exceeding expectations has exploded by nearly by more than 900,000. So a gain of 900,000 or so in March, which was probably the much, uh, I don't know what analysts were expecting for, for it, but it was, it was much higher than, the, uh, the, uh, than, than had been anticipated. That's right. So it was 916,000 jobs added. That was the headline. But you ask, is anything more, is it anything more substantial than just reopening? While the BLS pointed out widespread employment gains in the press release, there's a clear difference in the accounting. And that's what we're going to get into right now. Headline, great, but you're concerned about the labor force participation rate. Yeah, that had been an issue going back to the early part, you know, the middle part of last year, May and June. Remember May of 2020, the payroll report that came out then. At that time, analysts were expecting a couple million jobs lost, and it came out with a couple million jobs gained. Yes. And like, wait a minute, what the hell happened here? And it was really the fact that some parts of the economy had begun to reopen from all of the pandemic restrictions. And then, of course, if you loosen restrictions and let people go back to work, millions of people went back to work. And that's terrific. That's great. That's something we definitely want to see. 
but that's not all we want to see. We need to see reopening. We need to see a flood of workers that are going back to jobs they previously had. But we also need to see that that's not the only thing happening, that there's economic growth and there's economic uh, in, in, uh, contributions to the labor market too. And as we found out last year, after that initial flood of reopening, things went sideways, literally sideways for the last half of 2020, which was that other than reopening in May and June, there really wasn't much being contributed back. That's, that raised the, uh, the, pop, the possibility that maybe we had suffered some more permanent, perhaps long-term damage, economic damage, that, that uh, that's where we're really going to have to deal with going forward. Well, according to the headline, the unemployment rate now is at 6%, 6.04%. That's really good. I think that's fantastic. And that Even where we, yeah, I mean, what we were talking about in 2020, especially in March and April, you know, with, was it the unemployment rate 25, 30%, whatever the real unemployment should have been. And now here we are back at six again. Like 6% is a perfectly reasonable unemployment rate in any sort of economy. I would be happy with 6%. That's not bad at all. Sure, I'd like better five or something like that, but 6%, I'll take it. That hey, you out. think about in, in the middle of the last decade, in 2013, 2014, the Federal Reserve thought full employment might begin somewhere around five and a half percent. So here we are in March, a million jobs. Uh, maybe we're closing in on what used to be full employment. I mean, this sounds terrific. And that works out to 9.7 million people that you say are officially employed. And here's where it gets sad, Jeff. <laughs> me? Officially. You're blaming this on me? No, no that's the BLS. That, the BLS well, says they're officially unemployed. That's the problem. I'm just, don't blame the messenger. I'm not. I'm not. This is, you bring our attention to the word officially unemployed. Right. Because there's many more unofficially underemployed un, and just some sort of uh, <laughs> nether region where they're not counted but wanting to be looked for work looking for work. They're marginally so, attached. Yeah, so let's talk about some of, those, some of those numbers. Uh, let me see here. You said there are 5.8 million workers that are reporting to be employed only part-time for economic reasons. So that's- Yes, they want a full-time job, but they're working part-time. They tell the BLS, look, I would work full-time, but I'm only being offered part-time part work. So that's a measure of underutilization or underemployment. Then there are 1.8 million who have been excluded from the labor force because they are marginally attached. What does that mean? Marginally? That means that they want a job. They, sit, they tell the BLS guy, the surveyor, the person, whoever does the phone call and say, look, I would like a job, but I have not looked for one in the last four weeks. So for the last year, I've wanted a job, but I haven't looked for one in four weeks. That's the BLS cutoff. If you haven't looked for a job in the last four weeks, they do not include you in the official labor force number. Even though you say, I wanna work, you're not in the labor force because you haven't looked for work in four weeks. And so it's, you know, it's, it's sort of an arbitrary thing. And before the, the 2008 crisis, there really wasn't much uh, controversy about it because that was a pretty good assumption. If you hadn't looked for a job in four weeks, you're probably not really in the labor force. But things have changed since the 2008 crisis. Yeah which is why we talk about the U6 rate, which is another unemployment rate, that tries to account for the fact that the labor market is different than it has been. We need to account for some of this underutilization because that's a form of economic deficiency and decay too. 
if, if employers are hiring people, but they're not working them as much as they need to, as we just said, you know, uh, workers who are working part-time not uh, for, for economic reasons, or these marginally attached workers who say they want a job, but they haven't looked for one. Well, why haven't they looked for one? You know, it, the, the BLS says, well, you're just not in the labor force. And so there's, we're now at 10.6%. The U6 number stands at 10.7% for March. And that includes those two categories that we just discussed. Is that right, Jeff? Yeah, yeah. So you take the official unemployment rate, which on the numerator is the number of unemployed. That's the 9.7 million. The denominator is the official labor force. So when we add the, to get to the U6, you add those who are marginally attached plus those who are part-time for uh, economic reasons. And then the denominator, you add the marginally attached because they're not in the labor force. And that gives you the U6 number. Now you come up with a couple other important numbers here and observations here where we're now standing, what is this? The From 4.8 million in October, 2019 to just over 5 million in February, 2020 to 9.9 million in April. And now that's 6.9 million. That's what, is that what we were discussing or is that another category of underemployment? This is another, it is, but it's in a category that includes the marginally attached. These are okay. also, these are also people who tell the BLS they want a job, but they haven't satisfied any of these other requirements. So the people who are marginally attached are a subset of this larger category, which are not in the labor force, but want a job. And then on top of that, we have to add in all the people that are not in the labor force, but have stopped telling the BLS that they're looking for a job. Isn't that right? Yeah, and that's, a, that's 110 million. Yeah, well, <laughs> the, those who are not in the labor force and who don't want, or, or who do say they don't want a job, or at least tell the BLS they don't want a job, um, that's 110 million people. And it's really hard to say, well, how many of those millions actually do want a job, they just didn't tell the BLS person. And, and really, realistically, it's probably several million. Uh, and it's just, there's, there's no way in the BLS data to tell how many. So those are truly undercounted because they don't appear in any, any subset or any subcategory anyway. But we know that they're there because they have been the so-called economic slack that kept wage growth from rising too rapidly. They kept the unemployment rate from reflecting actual full unemployment because there was always some new workers to go into the labor market and keep wages low. We had never hit unemployment because some of these 110 million, or today it's 110 million, some of them actually are not, they say they're not in the labor force, they tell the BLS they don't qualify for labor force, but they really are. If there was a job available at the pay rate they wanted to get paid, they would enter the labor force and um, sort of representing shadow slack. You try to get a number that's a little bit more representative that doesn't include what we just discussed, the labor force that's missing, but you include what the BLS captures in the not in the labor force and want a, now, want a job now category. And that is your, the U6 number plus these other individuals that are discouraged, right? And that gets oh, yeah. us to you Just 13. take the U6 and add to it, well, actually we're not add to it, instead of using marginally attached workers, we'll use the whole subset of those who report to want a job. Right. 
So it's the U6 that includes the marginally attached workers, as well as all the others that are in that same category of not in the labor force but want a job, which adds another four or five million onto the uh, onto the both the numerator and the denominator. And that's thirteen point four percent. That's thirteen point four percent. I think what's really interesting about that the purple or, or the people who don't want a job or who want a job but are not in the labor force is that number hasn't really changed all that much since uh, since the middle of last year. While some of the other unemployment and underemployment numbers have improved more, much more considerably, that one really hasn't. And it's one that shouldn't have changed much at all to begin with, because these are people who are saying for the last year, I haven't really looked for work. All of a sudden there was 5 million more people who in March of 2020 who hadn't looked for work in the last year. No, they, they became unemployed and for maybe they were confused. I don't know what the specific answer is, but it's a measure of unemployment underutilization that doesn't go into the official statistics for reasons I don't really know. But it seems like given the way that it changed, it moved exactly with the recession and contraction, that maybe we should consider that some of these people who are reporting that they're out, reporting themselves outside the labor force maybe really shouldn't be outside the labor force. So we had this fantastic month for employment gains. Unemployment is now officially headline number 6%. But what we've just discussed is that it really, well, not really, but just that there is more, much more slack. We could say that it's 13.4% of discouraged and unemployed workers. And yeah, then- well, That's right, one, let's be clear. I think that's an important point. Let's, let's be clear about this. We're not saying 13.7% is the real unemployment rate. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is say, well, let's get a relative sense of what may be going on beyond the unemployment rate. We're not, we're not saying the unemployment rate is completely wrong. We're not saying there are U6 plus is, is the, the one you should pay attention to. All we're trying to say is let's look at relative changes in deeper, more detail beyond the headlines and see if we're getting the same corroboration that things are improving, which they are, but are they improving in the same rate, in the same way, at the same times, which they're maybe not. And I want to add more on top of that, Jeff. I want, to see, I want to point out to the audience that the labor force participation rate today is 61.5%. During 2018-2019, it was 63%. So 1.5% more during a terrible economy. That's what we're missing. If we go back to 2006, it was 66% four and a half percent that we're missing now and if we go back to 2000 67 percent so depending on which period you want to pick five six six and a half percent more labor force participation that has disappeared because of this uh the silent depression plus the offshoring that started after 2000 that we should some of that needs to also be added on top into the 13 percent to capture the idea of underemployed, unemployed, slack, and right? It's slack and you know yeah, it, people's lives that are uh, worse. The economy suffering, but of course, I guess that's this never the whole came point up of during figuring out full employment and the idea of the unemployment rate is to decide: is the economy doing as best as it can? That's what full employment says. Full employment says we've used up all the workers who want to be workers. And now it's going to become inflationary because businesses have to compete for scarce workers. 
What we found out was that that was never true. Even in 2018 and 2019, when the unemployment rate got to 50-year low, there was no inflation. There was no wage inflation. Wages kind of kind of accelerated a little bit, but they were still the wage gains were still historically low, historically depressed, which suggested that this amorphous hidden blob of slack, and I don't want to use the word blob, but uh, this hidden group of underemployed, underutilized workers who are outside the official labor force, they actually aren't outside the labor force. They would be in the labor force if the economy was performing the way that we're told it's performing. If the economy was generating jobs and growth and wages and pay rates that were consistent with a healthy system. And so the, the, the hidden measures, the U6 and beyond and going beyond them, well, the reason we did that for years was because it was very clear that the unemployment rate was no longer an effective measure of what was really going on in the, in the economy itself. Because things had been so bad for so long, there was all of these millions of hidden slack that when things did improve as they were in 2017, 2018, they weren't proving enough to absorb all of that slack. And so it just it continued to be an indication of, of why things were not going the way they were going, because the economy was not performing at its peak level, which it should have been given the low unemployment rate. My uh, cocktail napkin calculations put the number at 20.9 million, if you add in the unemployed plus what's missing from the labor force, if we go back to 2000 as being the slack or roughly of what this economy is missing. Yeah, and it doesn't have to, you know, we're not saying 20.9 million. What we're saying is it's some number much larger than the much official. Much larger. That's much right. Larger. That's really, we're not, we're, you know, let's be clear. We're not, we're not making claims of precision and accuracy mm -mm. here. All we're saying is that because 20.9 million is such an enormous number, and we realize it's not 20.9 million, it's something less than that. Mm -hmm. But because it's such an enormous number, we can reasonably consider that the labor force is some substantial degree much worse off than the headline numbers seem to indicate. And the question we have now moving forward is, as we're getting into the payroll reports and beyond, is it improving fast enough that that doesn't become another problem on top of the one that hadn't been solved since 2008? Another harmful long run negative impact that will continue to plague the economy for much longer than the next couple months. Well, Jeff, thank you very much for your time. I'll talk to you again next week. All right, Emil, take care.